This is Morning Air. This is about educating a people that for 40 years haven't been given the full truth. It's time now to speak the truth. When you do things to the best of your ability, keeping Jesus number one and doing everything you possibly can for His glory, that's a winner. You are called to make the light of Christ shine brightly in the world. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio. Four minutes after the hour, it's Friday, November 12th. Good morning and welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Every Friday right at the top of the show, I always remind you that Friday is the traditional day dedicated to the sacred heart of Jesus and our blessed Lord's passion and death on the cross. It's always a good day to meditate on the meaning of Jesus' passion and death on the cross for every one of us. Today is also the memorial of St. Joseph at Bishop and Martyr. He was born in Poland to Orthodox parents and became a Catholic of the Byzantine Rite. St. Josephat's intercession is a unifying bond for Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians, something that we'll address in the Power Scripture from the Playbook of Life coming up shortly. But first of all, I want to bring in my partner, Glenn Leverance. Uh, Glenn, happy winter. What's the latest on the <laughs> Kyle Rittenhouse uh, murder trial? Well, happy winter as we don't quite have to shovel, but maybe, depending how much more comes uh, later tonight, but uh, a dusting for those in Minnesota waking We're up getting ready too, sure. Glenn. We're getting ready here in the, in the Chicago area as well. Well, jurors in the uh, Wisconsin trial of Kyle Rittenhouse uh, getting today off before they decide his fate closing arguments begin on Monday. The defense rested after calling a rebuttal witness yesterday. Some of the left-wing media now focusing on the judge in the case. Uh, the judge, Bruce Schroeder, is uh, 75 years old, been at it for a long time, says he's uh, seen more murder trial uh, or you know more homicide-type uh, trials uh, than anyone in the States over time. And there's been focus on uh, how he's handled some of those in, in the past, um, you know, Folks, I guess, just looking for any kind of angle as as the trial has gone on. It seems like uh, there might be more, uh, you, you know, things leaning toward the defense a little bit in terms of self-defense, as we talked about with Monsignor Swetland uh, just in the last half hour. Absolutely. Uh, it sure looks uh, like uh, this case is headed to an acquittal uh, precisely on the, the uh, self-defense perspective. I thought Monsignor Swetlin last hour uh, was tremendous in giving us a, a real overview, uh, a Catholic perspective uh, on how society is breaking down. So if anybody missed our conversation from last hour, uh, they can always go to our podcast and then check out what Monsignor Swetlin had to say. Uh, Glenn, um, on, on another front, uh, the the uh, pandemic just uh, continues on. Uh, uh, COVID cases are rising in 28 uh, states. Um, what should we know? Well, it, it seems that some of the northern states, as folks are heading inside as the weather is colder, are seeing an uptick, uh, despite those being some states where vaccination rates are, are very high. New Hampshire, Vermont, Minnesota, Illinois, New Mexico, Rhode Island, Colorado, some of the biggest spikes of the last couple of weeks, but all have a fairly high vaccination rate as well. And so this uh, struggle against the, the Delta variant continues. Matter of fact, I would say in the last uh, a week or so, I've uh, you know talked with folks uh, 
you know, about half a dozen people or families that I know fairly well uh, in the last, say, three weeks or so have dealt with it. And that's uh, the most on an anecdotal level I've seen since this thing started back in March of, of 2020. And sadly, one of those people had passed away. Um, it was a mix of people vaccinated and unvaccinated. We continue to pray uh, for all the people that uh, have been suffering and all the people that have passed away uh, from this pandemic. Uh, We pray and we pray for uh, the day when this thing is over. As always, uh, thanks so much, Glenn. Sure thing, John. First things first, we start uh, every hour giving thanks to our Lord through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of life and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, in this year of St. Joseph, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we always invoke the Holy Spirit when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, can you believe that Advent begins just two weeks from this Sunday, November 28th? Relevant Radio has a free and a simple way for you to grow in your faith during this upcoming Advent season and get ready for the true meaning of Christmas, Christ the Lord. All you have to do is sign up for Father Rocky's Advent Inspirations. These are short, they're compelling daily audio reflections designed to help you go deeper into the beauty of the Advent season. These reflections will be emailed to you every morning, all during Advent. Just sign up for Father Rocky's free Advent inspirations at relevantradio.com slash Advent, or click on the banner on the Relevant Radio app. As we do every morning, our power scripture from the Playbook of Life is from John 17, 20 and 21. Our Lord Jesus prays for unity I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Our Lord Jesus Christ prays not only for the apostles, that they may become perfectly one, but for those who will hear the gospel through their preaching all through the ages. Jesus prays so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Lord Jesus. We need to pray for Christian unity, something we always do in January with 40,000 plus Christian denominations so that the world may know that God the Father sent Jesus and loves us just like he loves our Lord Jesus. We always pray with great confidence, Jesus, I trust in you. Now, this week, a divided U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Tuesday of this week in a case about whether chaplains should be able to place hands in prayer on death row inmates during executions. The case before the court involves a 37-year-old John Ramirez, who was sentenced to death for the murder of a convenience store clerk back in 2004. Some of the justice questioned if this would open up other requests and open up 
up uh, a Pandora's box, basically. Now, joining us with a legal and a Catholic perspective on this death row case for religious liberty is Andrea Picciotti Bayer. Andrea is a Stanford educated lawyer who has dedicated her legal career to civil rights and appellate advocacy. She's also the director of the Conscious Project and a mother of 10 children. Good morning, Andrea. Welcome back to Morning Air. It's good to be with you once again. Well, it's always a great invitation to receive from you guys. I love accepting it. Well, we're glad you're, you're with us because you always give us a, a really great and a really Catholic perspective on some of these legal issues, especially uh, when we're talking about the Supreme Court. Can you give us an overview of this particular Supreme Court case involving the role of chaplains in the execution chamber? What is the court uh, looking at? What are they going to be deciding on? Well, I really want to go back to what you mentioned before. In every case, there is an important context. And in this case, it is no exception. Um, It's a death row inmate in Texas, John Ramirez. He was sentenced to death after the 2004 murder of Pablo Castro, a father of nine. Very, very humble man, worked at a convenience store. And Ramirez stabbed him to death as Castro was emptying the garbage out in the parking lot in order to steal what ended up being a dollar and 25 cents from Castro's pockets. And and the reason why I point that out is it's it's very easy to get into the kind of the big picture issues and forget the people behind these cases. Um, Blessed be God, Ramirez looks like he's found religion in his time in jail and now is coming to the Supreme Court after not being able to come to an agreement with Texas prison officials on the method of his execution. Now, this case is unique in that um, Ramirez is asking for his pastor, a Baptist pastor, to actually lay hands on him and pray audibly during the execution. Now, uh, I found it very interesting. Texas allows the pastor in the death chamber and allows the pastor, Dana, um, to be able to accompany him leading up to that as well. So this isn't about excluding clergy care, but it's about kind of the moment of ending a man's life. And Texas raises some pretty strong arguments about wanting to control that as best as possible to avoid any, what they say could be grave catastrophes. What is uh, the the state of Texas's position? Uh, What are their objections to that final moment? You know, what they've said, and this has been a rule that's and a policy that's changed in the last few years, um, they recently allowed non-state employee chaplains to be in the execution chamber, um, but they have said, we can't have you touching him, and we can't have you speaking out loud. And their reasons for, for having that categorical ban is that this is, again, a lethal injection by intravenous And they're worried about any kind of touching to interfere with the lines to any kind of closeness to uh, Ramirez interfering with their line of view for their medical team. And um, if verbal prayers being said out loud, is that going to interfere with their ability to monitor the the process? Um, It's a very small death chamber. You know, it's, it's very difficult to read all the details of the process that's gone through. One thing's clear, though, that they take it seriously, 
and and they don't want any botched executions. And uh, from what I understand, uh, uh, Ramirez actually uh, challenged this in the court, saying that this was a violation on his religious beliefs. Is this really the bottom line, what we're looking at, uh, religious freedom? Well, you know, this is a really important aspect. Prisoners, especially death row inmates, do have religious liberties, and there are protections under the First Amendment as well as a federal law. It's called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And it's kind of a companion law, very similar to what we know as RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that's the law that protects groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor from having to include contraceptives in their employee health plans. So as far as a legal issue is concerned, yes, there is a right to religious freedom. But if the government has a compelling interest to limit the exercise of that right, it can do so as long as it's doing it in the least restrictive means possible. Those are a lot of legal standards. And this week, when the Supreme Court was talking about that, you really heard, I heard, the justices struggling over deference to the state as well as respect for religious liberty. And then uh, also the justices, uh, some of them questioned whether uh, this would open up other requests. Uh, what were some of the other concerns from the different justices? Can you kind of give us an overview of their different perspectives? Yes, you know, this is a challenge when we're dealing with prison inmates. There are a lot of requests, whether it's ineffective assistance of counsel or challenging you know, the, their convictions and raising these new claims on religious freedom, which are important and allowed under the law, the justices were concerned were going to be a stream of cases coming in. And in the death penalty context, they're usually coming in in the last minute. In John Ramirez's case, the claim that he's raising came to the Supreme Court on the date of his execution. The court stayed its execution, um, and this is the third time it's been stayed for Mr. Ramirez. And so the the challenge is, are these legitimate claims? And typically, courts never look at the sincerity of a person raising a religious freedom claim. But in the prison context, perhaps there's a need to peel back the onion a little bit. And I understand that Chief Justice uh, John Roberts uh, uh, also asked a hypothetical question of uh, an inmate, uh, perhaps if he wanted to confer, uh, convert to a, a different faith just before he's going to be executed, it, it could take months, uh, and it would just be another delay uh, that would affect uh, the prison si- uh, system. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, Chief Justice Roberts is known for being concerned for the court as institution, as he should be. And he raised that issue. Is this going to delay things longer as someone goes through, for example, an RCIA process? But other justices were asking, you know, so what does he want? And it turns out, you know, Mr. Ramirez wants his his pastor to touch his foot. He doesn't need to be as close to his heart or to where the IV lines are. And some of the other justices said, well, what's going to happen when someone says their religious belief wants them to be touched by their hand or on their head? Um, is every variation on a theme going to be coming to our nation's highest court? I think those are legitimate concerns. I think the justices all know the stakes are high. This is involving a man's life, and this is involving the, the victims' families who have been waiting for years 
to have closure as well. So it's, it's not an easy case by any stretch of the imagination. Our guest this morning is uh, Andrea Pichotti-Bayer, uh, a Catholic attorney, a Stanford Law grad, a mother of 10, and she's uh, also um, the uh, director of the Conscious Project. And so, uh, Andrea, what is the, the Catholic perspective on this case? What does this mean, for example, for Catholic chaplains? You know, I think that there is an issue, and I've, I actually spoke with my um, personal pastor saying, you know, when we're, you're giving last rites, um, how does that play out, the viaticum? Is it, do you think that it's necessary in the exact moment of death? And many of us, as we know through the COVID uh, pandemic, there are many people who were alone at the moment of death. Now, we do know that in our great tradition of the sacraments of last rites, they can be given and often are given before someone enters a very delicate surgery or if they're in an accident. And so it's a good reminder of the importance of last rites, the importance of clergy comfort, whether that needs to be at the moment of death or as someone is preparing. I think that, that our Catholic teaching says it doesn't need to be at the exact moment, but it does reinforce the importance of this kind of coming to grips with the end of life and that you have to answer to God and be ready for it. And that the church as church is ready to walk with people as, as they come to the end of their life on, on earth. The U S conference of Catholic bishops also has filed an amicus brief in this case, joined by the Texas Catholic conference. And they talked about the role of spiritual advisors to prisoners being of particularly grave importance at the moment of death. What's your perspective on what the USCCB is saying? You know, I read that brief. I thought it was a really important, interesting contribution. And when we talk about amicus curiae briefs, those are, you know, friends of the court. And the USCCB and the Texas Catholic Conference definitely was a friend to the court in this context. It's saying the issues here aren't just the religious liberty of John Ramirez, but of churches as institutions, that this is part of the church's contribution to the faithful, and that the church has an autonomy to be able to be there and walk with the members of of the faith. And and as I mentioned before, just a few years ago, Texas prohibited all chaplains from being in the death chamber. And some of the the contributions of, of the USCCB along the way were to say, you know, no, we really want to be able to be there as church. As, as church. And so I do think that it was an excellent contribution. We know that within the church right now, there's a lot of confusion on the issue of the death penalty itself. I'm not a supporter, but I definitely believe as a Catholic that when it is going to be um, deemed lawful in a state, we want to do all we can to make sure that there aren't any of these catastrophes when it's being uh, uh, kind of run out. And Andrea, there's been um, a couple of uh, religious uh, sisters uh, and a priest and uh, some Muslim, a Muslim, a Buddhist, and even a Unitarian uh, Universalist uh, who have gotten involved uh, in uh, this amicus brief uh, in the in the Ramirez case uh, that's been filed by the ACLU. Uh, what do you know about the perspective of uh, of these different religious um, uh, points of view all coming together uh, on this? case. You know, and, and it's not quite 
um, an issue in this case, in Mr. Ramirez's case. But on other cases in the last few years, there have been states like Alabama or even Texas where they only allowed state chaplains, state employees to be in the death chamber. And some of the cases, uh, some of the states only had Christian or Jewish chaplains or rabbis uh, deemed state employees. So there was a case of a Buddhist death row inmate who said, hey, I want you know, my, my Buddhist minister be, to be with me. And he wasn't a state endorsed or state employee. The Supreme Court said, well, you know, we've got an issue of religious discrimination in that context. That's not what's going on in John Ramirez's case, but it is a very important issue. And you can see that across faith communities, people understand that when you are coming towards the end of your life, religion matters. And we want to make sure as a country to recognize kind of that pluralism, that we don't limit the ability of each person to have access as, as they're confronting, um, you know, their final days or and, final hours. Andrew, I want to give you the final word. Uh, what's your gut feeling? I know you can never guess what a court's going to do, let alone the Supreme Court, but how do you think this case will be decided? You know, I think that the court will reaffirm the importance of religious freedom for inmates, but it may be that they're going to send the case back to the lower courts to decide at what level uh, this pastor's involvement in the execution chamber for John Ramirez is, is required by the law. Andrea, as always, thank you so much uh, for your Catholic perspective on these legal cases. Uh, appreciate very much you being with us this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure. Have a lovely morning. You too. Many blessings to you. Andrea Pichotti Bayer, Catholic attorney and the director of The Conscious Project. We need to take a short break when Morning Air continues. Dr. Joseph Meany, the president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, will be with us to talk about a couple that gave birth to the wrong baby. We will definitely talk about this case. Uh, stay with us. There's a lot more conversation to come as Morning Air continues after this. Today, we'd like to thank Bridget, who's listening in Nevada, for donating her Mercedes-Benz. You, too, can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting RelevantRadio.com car. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. 30 minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Relevant Radio Network and the Relevant Radio app. Our number, if you want to be part of the program this morning, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. I want to talk about uh, what I think is a, a quite an interesting a case. A couple from Los Angeles received in vitro ver fer fertilization treatment and ended up giving birth to the wrong baby. The couple ended up suing the clinic after this IVF nightmare, as Good Day LA reports. A couple is suing an LA fertility clinic after an embryo mix-up ended with them carrying and giving birth to a stranger's child. Daphna Cardinal gave birth to a daughter who appeared to be a different race from she and her husband. Later, DNA tests confirmed the baby actually belonged to another couple who in turn had carried and delivered the Cardinal's biological baby. Now they are suing the California Center for Reproductive Health over the trauma and pain they say they have endured. 
Our memories of childbirth will always be tainted by the sick reality that our biological child was given to someone else. And the baby that I fought to bring into this world was not mine to keep. The question is, how common are these so-called DNA mix-ups? IVF has been hailed by some as a scientific miracle, but is it totally ethical from a Catholic perspective to be having children in such a manner? What does the Catholic Church teach about in vitro fertilization? Now joining us uh, to discuss this case uh, from a Catholic moral perspective is Dr. Joseph Meany, the president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Dr. Meany received his PhD in bioethics from the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome and also was the director of the International Coordination for Human Life International. Good morning, Dr. Meany. Welcome back to Morning Air. Always good to be with you. Oh, thank you so much. Dr. Meany, first of all, what is your take on this case involving this couple that received the in vitro fertilization treatment? We just heard a little bit of audio. You heard the emotion in um, the the wife's uh, voice. Uh, They ended up uh, giving birth to the wrong baby. Uh, Can you give us your overall perspective on on, uh, what you just heard? Yeah. You know, there was an article that appeared a few years ago, and I think it, it kind of summarized the situation pretty well. It said, um, are, should we be surprised that an industry that makes babies would treat people this way? And I think it's absolutely true. I mean, the, the problem of, of tragedies like this are essentially the key to seeing, you know, what is wrong with making babies artificially, you know, in laboratories and allowing third parties to be involved in what should be between a husband and a wife um, and in the natural procreation of, of their own children. So these kinds of tragedies, these kinds of abuses are inherent in something that the church condemns very much, which is you know, artificial reproductive technologies, which replace rather than helping uh, couples uh, to conceive children in, in a way that is, is dignified and in a way that, you know, treats infertility as opposed to replacing their infertility with, with techniques, you know, and, and, and essentially third-party methods that, uh, that are quite harmful uh, on many, many different levels. And Dr. Mini, I want to dive into it and really break down the, the church's teachings here in a moment. But on this particular uh, case, uh, this couple uh, ended up suing the fertility clinic uh, for implanting the wrong embryo. Uh, you know, of course, a human error happens. But how common, uh, from your experience, are these uh, DNA mix-ups? So, you know, there are certain well-publicized cases. Um, the, uh, the other aspect of things that has been, you know, making many headlines um, recently is the fact that uh, some doctors, unscrupulous doctors who are part of the IVF industry, uh, were in- introducing their own sperm and therefore becoming the father uh, in some donor-conceived children. And uh, there are certain cases that came out where individuals had had fathered like that many, many children, uh, unbeknownst (laughs) to to the couples that were having these children. Um, It it seems like these abuses are, um, well, it's impossible to know how many, right? Because it's kind of an unknown quantity. Hundreds have come to light of, of cases where 
you know, the, the, the donors were, were in some way fraudulent. Um, there have been many different examples of, of individuals whose children, they thought they were having their own children implanted, but others were not. Um, one of the things that is, is really come to light is how unregulated, uh, effectively unregulated the in vitro fertilization industry is in the United States as compared to other countries. It sure sounds like it needs to be more regulated because what you just shared with us about these immoral doctors is outrageous. I mean, that's almost unthinkable. I, I can't believe that that's actually going on. Yeah, but, but you know, again, it's kind of hard to be surprised in a sense that, that unethical activity takes place when the actual process of in vitro fertilization is already highly unethical. Uh, you know, from the Catholic perspective, um, to, to treat a child as a commodity, right, that, that it can be produced uh, as opposed to, you know, procreated, <laughs> that's a huge distinction there. Um, conception of a child, you know, in a laboratory. And then, and then, of course, what automatically happens is quality control, where they look at the human embryos that have been conceived, and they generally conceive a, quite a large number, and say, okay, which ones seem to us to be the ones with the qualities we want, and the other ones we we will kill, right? We will we'll toss them away or putting, and this is the most common thing, right? Is, is, is putting all these human embryos into cold storage in liquid nitrogen um, and, and suspended animation with no guarantee whatsoever that they will be allowed to come to life. And, and so many couples have children that are, you know, frozen in these clinics and, and they don't know what to do with them. And it becomes a big pastoral problem in the church and a big debate about this, you know, what can be done for, for these children because they were conceived in this way. And, and, you know, it's just a real debate as to, as to what can be done morally to, to bring them to life. Well, Dr. Meany, this is exactly why we have you on the show to, to give us this, this moral clarity. Uh, in fact, folks have heard of the term IVF, in vitro fertilization, but can, can you explain for those who may be a little fuzzy on what exactly it is and, and how it works, uh, what exactly is IVF, uh, in vitro fertilization? Yeah, so in vitro fertilization was a technique that was developed in the 1970s um, and has become more or less an industry standard. You know, about 2% of children today in the United States are born uh, as a result of, of in vitro fertilization. And what that essentially involves is um, hyperstimulation of the ovaries of the mother to obtain a, a large number of eggs. Um, and then uh, obtaining the, the, the sperm sample there from, from the, the father or the donor, um, again, usually involving, you know, masturbation and immoral activity, um, and then conceiving the children in a laboratory, um, you know, uh, bringing them to life, and increasingly in a very unnatural way on top of everything else. Uh, the, the most common procedure uh, now is, is to do uh, intra cytoplasmic sperm injection so that they're literally instead of allowing the conception to happen naturally where the sperm penetrates the egg and, and, and conceives an, a new human embryo they will actually insert a sperm with with a, a micro pipette so a small needle uh, to conceive a new child but anyway the child is then conceived in the lab um, allowed to grow for a certain amount of time and then generally speaking frozen at which point the mother um, 
and, and in some cases it isn't even the mother, right? Because then we have cases of surrogacy uh, or, or donor gametes to where the it's not the biological mother who's going to be char- carrying the child. But in any case, uh, the person who will be carrying the child, these embryos are then transferred to the womb <clears throat> in the hopes that uh, they will implant in the womb and, and you know, carry through the pregnancy and, and come to birth. But it is a, a massively, massively deadly process for all these little human embryos, these little, little children. Um, I mean, I've seen one estimate that said that 90% of the children that are conceived in vitro die. And only 10% might come to birth because, because of the, uh, you know, the, the sorting quality control that goes on because so many don't survive either the thawing process from, from being um, taken out of the cold storage or they don't implant properly. Uh, you know, a lot of miscarriages occur, et cetera. Uh, it, is, it is really, really a terrible, terrible situation. Obviously, uh, this brings up uh, the basic moral principles that we need to, to consider from a Catholic perspective. Uh, the Catholic Church has a lot to say about this. Uh, life is a gift. It's not a right. Can you talk about a few of these uh, basic principles that we need to understand when we talk about uh, IVF? Yeah, I, you know, the, the, the most basic principle is, is essentially marriage, right? What is, what is uh, proper to marriage and, and what is proper to the conception of a new human life? And of course, you know, there's so many circumstances where people's rights are, are violated um, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're conceived in a way that is not appropriate, that is not moral because uh, they're, they're, you know, there's been premarital activity or there's even been sexual violence, etc. The dignity of the human child remains the same, right? God, God infuses the soul in every human person, but we have to be very clear as to what is our right as a human being to be conceived in a, in a, in a good and, and holy way, which is in the loving embrace of one's parents. And when infertility comes, comes into the picture and a couple is not able to conceive in a natural way, then there's a temptation to go to some of these, you know, clinics, et cetera, that say that they can, they can help these couples to have children. And in some cases they can, but, you know, we cannot allow any means that is immoral, uh, even if we have a very, very good end, a very good object, which is to have a, a child of our own. Um, and essentially what the principle is there is that we can never dissociate, right, the sexual act from the procreative act. So, you know, it goes all the way back. It's interesting how St. Paul VI really uh, hit the nail on the head with Humanae Vitae, right? But he always said that every sexual act had to be open to life, but it had to also be uh, naturally, um, you know, for the couple to be unitive. So the unitive and the procreative side of, of sexuality have to be maintained. And of course, what happens with IVF is that the the procreative side, they, they do conceive a new human life, but the unitive side is totally cast aside, right? Instead of the child being conceived through the loving act of, of his or her parents, that child is conceived through a laboratory technician putting together the sperm and, and the egg in a, in, you know, a Petri dish. And, and that is not, not a way uh, that is dignified for human beings to be conceived. 
There's so many questions. Um, I'm sure our listeners have some questions uh, as we continue talking about some of these moral principles that we need to consider when we talk about uh, IVF in vitro fertilization. Uh, there are folks who say, um, why is the Catholic Church opposed to IVF? Uh, isn't it still a life? Uh, many different perspectives uh, from uh, our brothers and sisters, I'm sure, uh, this day. If you have any questions for Dr. Joseph uh, Meany, the president of the National Catholic Bible, Bioethics Center, uh, a PhD in bioethics. Uh, now is the time to give us a call. We have open lines, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We need to take a short break as we continue our conversation with Dr. Meany. And uh, stay with us. We have a lot more after this. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. That's eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. We have some open lines. Uh, if you have any questions whatsoever on uh, in vitro IVF, in vitro fertilization, uh, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Joseph Meany, the president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, talking about this very important issue, uh, the the issue of life, the if, issue of the morality, uh, the Catholic perspective on in vitro fertilization. Dr. Meany, uh, welcome back. Thank you very much. We were talking uh, about some of the moral principles uh, to consider. Um, can you uh, share with us a, a few other aspects? I know you talked about the importance of, of, of marriage uh, as the proper setting uh, for uh, the sexual act. Uh, this is where we need to be uh, from a Catholic perspective. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's so important to reaffirm that the Church is very much in favor of science, very much in favor of health care, um, and infertility is a health problem. And therefore, you know, if, if couples uh, are unable to conceive children, there should be medical assistance to them uh, so that they can conceive children. You know, and, and there's so many different medical uh, techniques, et cetera, uh, to help uh, whether it's male or, or female infertility. Um, but those treatments are absolutely moral. What is not acceptable um, is to treat a child as as something that, that can be, you know, conceived in the laboratory, um, can be manipulated uh, by third parties. Um, you know, I think it's very important to realize that we were all at one time human embryos. We were all conceived, you know, as, as a single cell <laughs> by, our, by our fathers and our mothers. And, and we, you know, we grew up in, in, in that beautiful, beautiful embrace of our mother in our mother's womb, etc. In vitro fertilization, by its very nature, uh, goes against uh, those goods. So we're not conceived in the loving embrace of our parents. We are, we are manipulated and, and pushed and prodded, etc., by lab technicians, um, not treated with the human dignity that we should should always have received from our very first moment in existence uh, by, by people who are mostly interested in making money. Um, you know, the IVF industry makes billions of dollars a year. <clears throat> 
producing children. And they, they clearly do not respect the lives of these children because they're constantly killing them. Uh, because they think, oh, well, this child might have some some problem or defect, or um, you know, the putting them in cold storage, right, <laughs> where, where they're they're being kept in liquid nitrogen, or the fact that, and this is very common practice, you know, the the uh, the implantation uh, insertion of many different embryos in the hope that one will be conceived. But if more children are conceived, so so the the mother there has several children growing in her, then the IVF industry generally does selective reductions, that is, abortions of some of these children. Yes. And so they're saying, you know, we want you to have the one child that you wanted uh, according to, you know, your wishes. And it goes very far, right? I mean, so in some cases, it's like, well, you know, we can we can provide tailor-made children, you know, with donor donor sperm donor eggs, et cetera, we can conceive children, you know, according to your, your wishes, right? If you want to have certain kind of traits to those children, hair color or whatever else, we can guarantee that. It, it's, it's really uh, a vision of the human person that is very antithetical to the Catholic view that we should be, you know, respectful of, of the dignity of every single human being rather than trying to manipulate and dominate something that should be a beautiful act of love. And children are not a commodity. There's so many questions, uh, Dr. Meany. I'm sure, uh, I know I have a lot of questions. I've, I've heard a lot of questions uh, from uh, folks uh, about the, the Catholic Church's teaching. They, they, some question, how can the Catholic Church be opposed to the creation of life? Uh, Michael is uh, joining us uh, from Jacksonville, Florida. Michael, uh, welcome to uh, Morning Air. Yes. Thank you for taking my call. And I just have two questions. So, you know, Matthew Kelly, a great author, he often says people are turning away from the Catholic Church because of all the bad. And he's very great statement. All the bad can't take away from the good. And people focus on that. So my question with in vitro is if we have a couple that is loving and wants to have a child, and God provided this in vitro that they are going to use for all the good. Why does the people using it for all the bad, which is true, why are they not allowed to use that with this God-given uh, uh, process for strictly the good? And we talk about the Pope saying things, but yet we, just like when, it, and this is a little offshoot, you don't have to answer it, but when President Biden said, Pope says I'm a good Catholic, I should receive communion, and he stays silent. So we confuse the Catholics with sometimes, this is, uh, if we do it for good. And uh, if you could answer that, uh, I'd appreciate it. And then, like, Th Thanks, Michael. Uh, let uh, let uh, uh, yeah. Dr. Meany react. Uh, doctor? Yeah, no, I mean, the... the the thing that is so important to to realize is that uh, people, you know, are suffering, and and they, you know, infertility is a is a terrible evil, and and we should be trying to help them in any way we can. My wife and I um, suffered nine years of infertility before before having our first child, um, and so that, that we know that suffering is it's very great, uh, but there there has to be good means for a good end. Right. Clearly, the desire to have one's own child um, to overcome infertility is is a very, very good 
goal. But in order to arrive at that good goal, one also has to use a good means that is respectful of uh, the dignity of the human person and, and even of the dignity of that couple, right, of, of not allowing others to be involved um, in ways that are inappropriate. Now, to, to get all the, the kind of health care to overcome that infertility, to assist them is great, but, but they can never have um, their, their mutual, you know, procreative love replaced uh, by a third party, by a technician or something else. And actually, I mean, NAPRO technology, uh, which is, you know, done by Dr. Hilgers and, and other different means of overcoming infertility that are very much approved by the church, actually have very high success rates. So it's not even a question of, um, you know, foregoing something that is, that is uh, very highly successful. It is rather uh, using the right means to arrive at the right end, right? To, to treat infertility as opposed to creating children uh, in an inappropriate way. Thank you, Michael. So important uh, to know the alternatives. Uh, we have uh, time for one more caller. Uh, very quickly, we go to Mark in Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Mark, uh, welcome. What is your question for Dr. Meany? Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. I'll make this quick. I know that I have just a moment. I have at least three relatives that I know of who have brought children into the world with this technology. And it's, um, I don't, I think to, to some degree, they don't know that what they did was wrong, but if they, and, and to some degree, they, they may know that the church teaches that this is wrong. My question is, it's more pastoral question. How do I minister to them? How do I evangelize them? You know, when they have these children in the world, say, that are beautiful, that are, you know, blessed by God, how, that, I find that the most difficult thing, more than abortion, more than contraception, more than the other moral teachings, I find it's very difficult to minister. Any words of advice? Absolutely. We have about yeah, a minute, so, uh, uh, Doctor. The key thing, of course, is to affirm absolutely that these, these are beautiful children loved by God, etc. But nonetheless, uh, to realize that, that the means of their conception and, and, and bringing into life was was not appropriate and, and, and did harm their dignity. Um, so one has to, you know, make a, a very strong distinction there uh, to help people realize as well, because I think a lot of people don't realize what the Church teaches on this, but to give it a very clear perspective that uh, life is, is precious and, and we have to achieve conception uh, in ways that are very respectful. Um, and I think that that message can resonate. Mark, I so much appreciate uh, your question. A lot of uh, folks out there feeling exactly the same way. Uh, Dr. Meany, thank you so much for taking the time to educate us about this ethical and very important moral issue. Thank you. Many blessings to you, uh, Dr. Meany. Uh, Dr. Joseph Meany, the president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. And now it's time for yet another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Our story today is called The Power of Solitude by Steve Goodyear. Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick portrays the whaling industry of his time. In today's world, his book may likely upset readers who share more enlightened attitudes about the use and abuse of animals, but a scene in the story can teach us even today something about the power of solitude and focus in daily life. Melville gives us a turbulent scene in which a whaleboat scuds across a frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale. The sailors are laboring to keep the vessel on course in a raging sea, every muscle taut. They labor furiously as they concentrate on the task at hand. In Captain Ahab's boat, however, 
there is one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold an oar, he doesn't perspire, he doesn't shout. He is languid, utterly relaxed, quiet, and poised. This man is the harpooner. His job is to patiently wait for the moment. Then Melville gives us this sentence. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness, not out of toil. What a marvelous picture for effective living. Those who live each day to the fullest must prepare for them from a state of idleness rather than toil. For many people, this means a daily period of quiet and meditation to focus, plan, or pray. Self-help expert Brian Tracy calls it an indispensable daily time of planning and preparation. He suggests we devote a full hour to alone time every morning. That's when we set our daily priorities so that we and not events are in charge of our lives. I don't have time for that, some people complain. My life is simply too busy to add one more thing to it. But most people find a regular period of solitude to chart the day's course, still the mind, listen and prepare, actually creates more time than it takes. For we are most effective when we start to our feet out of idleness and not out of toil. From Mark 135, And in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place, and there he prayed. Thanks so much, Glenn, as always. What a great reminder. I also want to remind you that you can always listen to any of Glenn's Story Corners or any of our Morning Air podcasts or any segment that you might want to show, uh, share with anybody f- from our show. Just, all you have to do is download it at the Relevant Radio app or go to relevantradio.com. Uh, don't forget to pray the rosary tonight with Father Rocky, and that'll do it for this edition of Morning Air. For Glenn Leverance, for producers Sarah Tafoya, Mariano Gomez and Gabby Burke. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless you. We'll see you next time.